As we start our prayer time, I want to mention someone who's in the hospital this morning. He's one of our elder emeritus, Bobby Blaylock. Ginger took him to Athens about 4 o'clock this morning with heart distress. As many of us know, he has a history of heart trouble. Uh, They have now transferred him by ambulance to Augusta. And uh, I talked with Bobby and with Ginger about 7 this morning. And we'll check in with them as soon as church is over. But I encourage you to lift them up and pray. Um, Kiddingly, I said to Bobby on the phone this morning, we had dinner last night, and I hope that's not what did it. (laughs) But do pray for our elder emeritus and pray God's blessing on him. Let's pray together. Father, most of us think of a good day as a day when we get out of bed in the morning and things go well at home and things go well during the day and we find some joy and happiness and we're able to be involved with other people and maybe even help other people. And we come home at night with a sense of well done and we go to bed at peace. That's not normative for a lot of folks, Lord. We live in a broken world and we're broken people and we don't get it right all the time and sometimes things just happen because we live here. What makes a good day, Lord, is when we walk in your spirit all day. When we get up in the morning and dedicate our day to you and when we walk through the day praying and reading scripture and being conscious of you and seeing you in our life and in the lives of others, And when we get home at night, Lord, and we get ready to go to bed, that we thank you for allowing us to walk with you and for you having walked with us. Help us to get all that straight in our minds, Lord, because so often we're disappointed when really we ought to be thankful. A lot of times, Lord, hard things come into our life and they come to help us to grow spiritually and help us to grow closer to you and help us be sensitive to other people. And there are other times, Lord, we just do things that are plain wrong. They're wrong in your eyes and even wrong sometimes in our own eyes if we stand back and take a look at them. I pray this morning that you would help us individually to come to terms with whatever it is in our life we need to come to terms with so that things might be straightened out between us and that we might take advantage of the atoning death of Jesus and our redemption, that we might walk in your spirit and feel that victory and feel that joy, and that we might get to know you better every day. For the days that we don't do that, Lord, I pray your forgiveness. And I pray that we might leave here at the foot of the cross covered by the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus. Any of the sins of our life. Father, we've just gone through a Christmas season that some choose to call a holiday season and others acknowledge the birth of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. 
It's a little bit of an oxymoron, Lord, that there could be so much celebration and so much devoted to the Christmas holidays, and yet our country could be in the mess it's in. The inconsistency seems to rest with us. Father, please, as we as a nation call out at Christmas time, help us to celebrate the birth of Christ and live for him throughout the year. And it does appear, Lord, that there's an ever-increasing number of people in our country who do not believe in Jesus, who don't care about heaven and don't fear hell. I pray, Lord, that you would cause a revival to take place in our land. And I pray that that revival would be the kind that's a lasting revival, lasting for eternity, where you would touch people and bring them to yourself. And through faith in your son, Jesus, that they might become part of your family. The fields are ripe for harvest. I pray for that harvest. I thank you that every day and every night here and around this world you bring people to yourself. And I thank you, Lord, that by that oneness with you there's an assurance when death does knock on our door that this is not the end of life, just the beginning. And Father, we praise you for that. For you're the one that causes that to happen. I do pray, Lord, as I was reminded by someone this morning, I pray for the firemen, I pray for the policemen, I pray for the doctors and nurses, I pray, dear God, for those in the <clears throat> military services, and I ask your blessing on them and on their families. For when duty calls, they're so often separated from the very things that are precious to them. And we ask you to bless them. Father, when we come together, we always have folks like Bobby Blaylock. We have folks who are suffering physically, folks who are looking at surgery, folks who are not looking at surgery and learning to live with pain. Folks who have emotional issues and financial issues and conflict with other people. I pray, dear God, your blessing and your help. I pray that your Holy Spirit that already dwells in us would be quickened, would rise up and be more than a counterbalance, Lord, but take control of our lives and help us with the things that challenge us most. Thank you, dear Father, for always being faithful. Thank you for always being involved in our life, moment by moment. Thank you for being a God that never changes, a God who has committed himself to love us, and now we know we're loved through Jesus Christ and a God who's already prepared a room for us in heaven. Father, we thank you for being the God you are. Bless our church, Lord. We're about to undertake a very important function in our church through this committee that's been elected today. 
We pray your blessing through your Holy Spirit on each one of them and on the others who were willing to be nominated. We pray that at this moment you'd be working in the heart of the man and his family that you're going to call to our church. You do all of that perfectly, Lord, and we thank you for that and commit that process to you. Thank you for putting your hand on us, individually and corporately. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and then when I'm praying, I think, you know, I'd like to just keep on praying. But I'm supposed to preach this morning. I told Susan what I was preaching on, and she says, there are no hymns I can pick that are going to talk about hell. But that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And look with me at the 16th chapter, and we're going to study the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, starting in the 19th verse. The Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, beginning in the 19th verse, and we're going to study through the 31st. Once you have found your place, please put your finger in your Bible and look up. Let's get some well-needed help. Let's pray. Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would now open your word. You caused men to record these words under the influence of your Spirit and to do it in the uniqueness of their own language and their own culture and their own experience. But you, dear God, have made it perfect and inerrant. And it speaks to us today through the generations. I pray your blessing on what we're about to do. And Father, if there's something said that is not in accord with your desires, I pray you'd let it just be blotted out from our memories. But the things, dear God, that are of you, things that you want us to remember, I pray you would embed them in us like a branding iron that they might have an influence over what goes on in the days ahead. Bless us now, I pray, and let your word be alive as it is read and preached. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a man that you probably don't know, or at least not by name. His name is Bruce Joel Rubin. Anybody ever heard of Rubin? I never had. I had to go hunting for him. But I found him, and he is a man who back in the late 1980s was commissioned to write a screenplay. He's one of those people in the background that we don't get to know. And he sat down up in New England, and he wrote a screenplay, for which he later, in 1991, got an Oscar award. I wonder how many of you have seen the movie Ghost. I'm not giving an advertisement for a movie, but it's an interesting movie. I've seen it twice. When you see the movie, you might say it's a love story about a man who loved his wife and she loved him very dearly. 
but his life was cut short. And for an intermediate period, he returned to this earth as a ghost out of concern for his wife. And throughout the movie, you can see that love relationship expressed in a variety of beautiful ways. Or you might look at that same movie and you might say, well, it's a movie about retribution. You see, Patrick Swayze, who was the lead character, <clears throat> was killed as a young man in an attempted robbery. The man who killed him later died. And in the movie, there was a very graphic scene that I will never forget of these beings from hell ghouls, whatever you want to call them, rising up out of the ground and taking this man who was an evil man, screaming and kicking to hell to face agony for eternity. Very picturesque. Then a little bit later in the movie, the second person who was responsible for the death of the main character, he died in a very violent death an evil man, and he had the same experience as the first man. These ghoulish characters came and physically bound him up and took him to hell, much against his will. You know, if you watch those kind of scenes, <clears throat> you would think that that would scare the out of somebody, wouldn't you? And wouldn't you also think if you watch something or read something about heaven that it would be so compelling that it would cause us all to want to go to heaven? But folks, it doesn't work that way. People can have for a moment a glimpse of hell or a glimpse of heaven and be moved for the moment and go right back to the lifestyle they had before they saw it. One of the beautiful things about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is he doesn't use those kinds of things. What he does is he dispatches his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit never misses the mark, not once. And his Holy Spirit comes to someone at a particular point in their life and grabs hold of that person with the gentlest hold and an irresistible kind of grace starts to work. And the person is regenerated because they were born dead in sin. And in that regenerated state, they have the ability with the help of God to believe by faith, not by sight. And in that they become a child of God covered by the blood of Christ and forgiven. The man who wrote the screenplay, Bruce Joel Rubin, said he had a couple of purposes, and I heard him say this. He said, one of the purposes of my movie, of my screenplay, was to say that there's a whole lot more to us than meets the eye. A whole lot more going on with us, inside of us, and for us than you would normally realize. The second thing he said was his purpose was to help us get in touch with the spirituality 
of each one of us. Isn't that interesting? More than a love story, more than retribution, talking about the person and particularly about the spiritual aspect. And with that in mind, he wrote that movie. What I want to do is I want to take a quick glimpse at heaven. But I'm more than that today, want to take a glimpse of hell. If you would look with me at the passage, the Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, and follow along as I read. And listen carefully, for God is about to speak to us. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, They do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, you start to talk about hell and some interesting emotions come up. I have heard over and over throughout my ministry, people say hell cannot really exist. We have a loving God and he would not let anyone experience Hell, total separation, torment, agony. We don't base our theology on what we think. We base our theology on the Bible and what it teaches. There are other people who are nihilist, and that seems to be becoming more of a fad today than it's ever been. A non-believer who is an annihilist is a person who says, when I die, it's all over. That's a secular humanist today. This is it. Live it to its fullest, because when you take your last breath, you just exist no more. 
annihilation. Those who are believers, and interestingly enough, there's some pretty prominent believers who believe in annihilation. They believe that if a person is evil and they go to hell, that they experience torment. They do not uniformly believe that they are in any way redeemed from that, but they experience torment and agony for a season. And then it comes to an end that it's not eternal and that they no longer exist. Orthodox Christianity does not teach either one of those. Orthodox Christianity teaches that there is a hell, a very real hell, and that there is wrath of God. We sang a hymn this morning, In Christ Alone. I mentioned to you three or four Sundays ago that one of the mainline denominations in our country that is rewriting their hymn book has just decided not to incorporate that hymn. And if you go back and look at the words of that hymn, it talks about the wrath of God. And they said that the majority of people in their Protestant denomination, millions, that the majority do not believe in the wrath of God. I'm sorry, our Bible teaches the wrath of God. You either base your theology on this or you base it on what you think. And if you've lived as long as I have, what I think ain't always right. Anybody else ever have that experience? I'd like to base it on something that's inerrant that never changes. And this never changes. God never changes the plan. If you look at verses 19 through 22, you see a glimpse of the two main characters in their life. One was a rich man, and he's described, and I think what Jesus is doing in Luke's recording is trying to say, let me capture this rich man's life so you'll understand it. He wore clothing that was dyed purple. You remember that's a purple dye that's a very expensive dye. It comes from a shellfish out of the Mediterranean. People have to dive for them, bring them out, get the bladder out, use the what I call ink that comes out of that to dye clothing purple. So it's a very expensive process. So what the parable is saying is this man had a lot of money and he invested his money. Said also that he wore linen clothing. Again, an expensive garment that other people could see the purple and they could see the linen. And it's impressive when a person walks in wearing linen and purple garments. And then it said... And every day of his life, all the time he lived in splendor. He surrounded himself with splendor. Now let me be quick to tell you, this does not teach that it is a sin to be wealthy. So pay your preachers well. (laughs) Y'all like that, didn't you? (laughs) So will the next guy. (laughs) It's not a sin. You know what the sin is? The sin is how you manage it. The sin is how you take that which God has blessed you with because it comes from him. And how you use that. If you use it and you're a channel to distribute it in a meaningful way or whether you're self-consuming. What is a sin is how you treat other people. He wants us, first of all, to love him and secondly... To love each other. And if you're totally self-consumed and everything ends here, you're breaking the second greatest commandment. You'll understand. 
Second character, Lazarus. A poor man. And you can grasp how poor he was. He is carried, obviously can't walk, to the gate of the rich man's home. Doesn't have access to the rich man's courtyard. He is on the outside of the gate. And there he is trying to get alms, someone to give him something. In most of the world, that is an acceptable social security program. We don't think of it that way. Most of the world does. Scripture also tells us that he had sores all over his body. That's indicative of poor health. That's indicative of not getting medical treatment. That's indicative of bad personal hygiene. And when you add those together, you have a personal person who's in real misery, suffering with those things. And the scripture says, and he would eat the crumbs off of the rich man's table. It does not say they brought the crumbs to him. It's trying to help us understand how desperate he was, what he was willing to do, how much he was in need. And then scripture says, almost anecdotally, says, and they both died. The poor man is taken by an angel. You notice how angels keep reappearing in the narratives of Scripture? We're going to deal with them in a couple of weeks. But an angel comes and takes the poor man to heaven. And now you start to see a picture of heaven, and next Sunday we're going to look at heaven. You start to see a picture of heaven, and you see Abraham, who's already been saved, and we know some of the people who are there because they were involved in the transfiguration, And Abraham is there, and he receives this poor, desperate, destitute person who was covered with sores, sores that even the dogs would lick. And Abraham holds him in his arms. It's all okay. That's the way God communicates to us. It's going to be okay. No matter what the hardship is, no matter what the challenge has been on earth, it's going to be okay. And we're going to be surrounded by love and the companion of other people, and it's okay with them too. Abraham no longer struggles. He's in heaven. Beautiful view of heaven. If you look at 23 through 26... You get a glimpse of the afterlife of hell. The word is used Hades in my translation. For today's purposes, hell and Hades are interchangeable words, interchangeable terms. The word Hades, and particularly the word hell, Gehenna in Greek, comes from an eternal fire that burns on the south side of the city of Jerusalem, which was built up on a knoll approachable only from the north, with a valley on three sides. On the south side, out of sight, was the trash heap for the city of Jerusalem, down where it would not bother anybody. And it burned 24 hours a day as they would take trash out of the city down to Gehenna, an eternal fire. So that's the word that's being used in 23 through 26. 
And it says very picturesquely that the rich man is in hell, in Hades. Let there be no question it's a physical place. He's been dispatched there for eternity. And he looks up and he can see in the far distance the poor man in the arms of Abraham. And he calls out and calls him Father Abraham and says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to get some water on the tip of his fingers and come put it on my tongue because I'm in agony. Start to understand what's happening to the rich man. He's in torment. And he calls out and says, please, have pity on me. Why would God let that happen? Why would a loving God let people experience torment and agony for eternity? I know. Most of us do not even begin to grasp the severity of sin. Sin is so reprehensible to a righteous God that he would take his beloved creation, Adam and Eve, and cast them out of his presence and put an angel at the entrance to the garden and say, you, under your own power in that condition, may never come back in to this perfect environment. That's how put off God was by their sin. Sin is so bad that it corrupts people. It destroys the gifts God's given to us. It messes up our relationship within families and friendships and working relationships and even in church. It's sin. Can't be described how bad it is. It's so bad that it required a solution in the death of Jesus. No other way for us to be atoned for, no other way for us to be reconciled. It required the death of the Son of God that we might be atoned for. That's how bad sin is. And you and I live with it every day of our life. So is it fair for a loving God to let some people experience the just consequence of their sin? If he's a just God, it is. He is a just God. He's a God of grace. Why would he exempt some of us? Isn't that a good question? Because we do things that are wrong, don't we? Every one of us. How come he's exempted us? Not from the consequence of our sin during this life. We do live with those consequences. But why would he take us to the bosom of Abraham and let us be okay for eternity? You know why? He did it according to the kind intention of his own will, period. He chose to do that. So when you and I walk in that door, we ought to be saying, thank you, Father. Praise you, Father. For we deserve what the rich man got. But we, by grace, 
are going to experience the glory that the poor man got. It's kind of insightful if you look at the rich man's comments. He says to Father Abraham, Father Abraham, I'm in agony. Would you dispatch Lazarus? Tells you something about how he still sees Lazarus. Would you send Lazarus to do this? Let me tell you something. When you and I are bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are no other servants. We don't think of ourselves as better. When we are locked heart to heart with the Lord Jesus, we look at other people just like he looks at them. And you don't say, well, I'm better. I deserve something they don't deserve. You don't go there. Instead, you have their best interest at heart. And you learn to love the way they love. And what we do so often is we put people in little categories and say, well, they're not deserving and they are. That's not how this works. This is a grace-driven relationship. If it worked like that, get ready for the heat. It doesn't work like that. It works by grace. And what God wants us to do is to learn how to emulate that ourselves toward other people, to have that in our heart of hearts. Father Abraham doesn't dispatch Lazarus. If you look carefully at the passage, what he does is he explains. He says, and therefore, between us is this great chasm. Nobody can come to you, and you can't come to us, which suggests to us that heaven and hell are eternal states. There's no second chance in hell. So to the foolish person who says, I'm going to keep living on the edge in this lifetime. Beware. You don't know the day that is written for you to die. And once you are dispatched, you stay dispatched. Once you arrive in your eternal estate, there you shall remain. And I think he's trying to communicate that to us. If you look on down at 27 through 31, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I read that and I said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. What about all the other people in his life? What about all the other people that he neglected and offended in his life? Is he not concerned about them? Why just his brothers? You see, you start to see something in the heart of this rich man that still hadn't been resolved. He still wants Lazarus to serve him, and he's still not thinking about other people in the broadest sense. Do you do that? When you meet folks, do you think about them spiritually? Do you wonder where they are in their walk with the Lord? Folks, you and I are the communicator. If we don't communicate it, it doesn't get communicated. If God's going to call somebody, he'll find somebody else to call them. But you and I have that opportunity to be that kind of open and to be that kind of discerning about other people. I want to add 
just a little second thought about the rich man. How do you get like he got? How do you get to where you live a whole life and you're self-consumed, and then when you die, you take that into hell with you, and you still want Lazarus to serve you, and you're still only concerned about your own brothers, not everybody? I have a theory about that. When you got a lot of stuff and you don't handle it right, you insulate yourself. And after a while, you build up this huge scab on your heart, and it becomes almost impenetrable. Normal things, like a man laying at your gate begging with sores, don't touch you. And that says you and I need to be careful. Not a sin to be blessed financially. The sin is when our heart gets to be hard. And when we have a hard heart and we're insulated from other people and we stop caring and we're thinking just about what we want when we're pride-driven, when we're self-motivated, we've got a problem. And you can see it running consistently through this rich man's experience. Again, he's told, well, there's no way for anybody to go from here to heaven or from heaven back to Hades, back to hell. And then the rich man comes up with a really good idea. He says, well, how about this? How about if you take somebody who's dead and let them rise up and go back to my brothers? They'll listen to him. They'll be so amazed that he's been raised from the dead that he'll get their attention. The Gospel of John. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He's walking around talking. People can touch him. If ever there was a time people would say, oh, look, somebody's returned from the dead. Now I will believe. And John tells us, but the priest started plotting how to kill him, how to get rid of him. Think of all the people that turned their backs on Jesus and walked away and said, your teachings are too hard. It's not by sight. It's by faith that we come into a relationship. And Abraham says, even if I sent somebody back, which I won't, it wouldn't make any difference. They have the prophets. They have Moses. They've got the ingredient already present. We have it present in our generation and in every generation. My goodness gracious, there are churches and Christian radio stations and Christian bookstores all over this globe. And a person can drive by in front of our church, and if you ask them, where is Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church, most non-Christians don't have a clue. I went to a church. I was doing consulting work. And I used to do this on a regular basis when I'd go into a church. And I went to a convenience store that was in sight of the steeple on the church that I was going to work with. And I said to the person behind the counter, where is such and such a church? And they said, I don't know. It was right there. They work there every day. In all probability, they walk or drive by that church every day. 
They can't see it. Something has to happen in here. To have the eyes of faith, a regeneration has to take place. And that's what's happened to those of us who have been loved by God. And you and I have eyes. And we have ears. Orthodox Christianity teaches there is a heaven and there is a hell. And they are very real places. And it does us well to wrap our arms around both those doctrines and to be able to explain them to people who don't understand. That one is grace and one is justified. And they both exist. One of our members said to me this week, I think she's sitting here right now, she said to me this week, I saw that you're going to be preaching on hell. She said, I'm glad you are because I'm not going there and I'd like to know more about it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you love us enough to share with us Not everything, Lord, and we don't get our arms around all of it, but you have shared with us so that we might understand the things that are helpful and essential. Thank you, dear God, for the existence of heaven. And thank you that by grace we're going to get to go there. Please help this passage stay alive in our memories and impact our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. George, come join me a moment. If you would, tell us the results. Okay. Uh, Let me go through the uh, whole uh, readout, and that is uh, for the senior pastor search committee, appointed by the session is Tommy Evans. Appointed by the deacons is Fred Harris. Appointed by women in the church, Ginger Blaylock and Ellen Utley. Elected by the congregation, Dan Murphy, Karen Hildebrand, Larry McDonald. Elected as alternates, Becky Geisler, Rich Good. Thank you, brother. I'm going to ask, as I do after every congregational vote, that we seal the ballots and we will agree where to keep them for a short period of time and then we will destroy them after a reasonable amount of time. We had an unusually high number of folks who volunteered to be nominees and praise God for that. That's a healthy sign for us as a church. When you see those folks, hug them. When you see the ones who got elected, hug them twice because they're going to need it. they got a chore ahead of them, a good chore, but a chore. Why don't you stand? You know what a benediction is? It's not a prayer, so it's okay if you look at me. A benediction is a time when we receive the blessing of God and say, thanks. God bless you and God keep you and may you walk with his spirit 
and give his spirit the freedom to guide you and use you and bless you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 